Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Update for you. As of today, it is a little more than two weeks until Christmas. Fifteen days and counting. I heard a couple of those groans. And as December rolls on, do you notice the tendency of people this time of year to replace their typical greeting of others of, you know, how are you, with, are you ready for Christmas? Isn't that annoying? Are you ready for Christmas? How would you answer that question? Are you ready for Christmas? You might answer based on how much you have or have not accomplished in terms of the physical preparations for Christmas, you know, wrapping and buying and wrapping presents, baking cookies, sending cards, and so forth. Then again, you might answer this question a little bit more spiritually. You know, you might answer this question how you're doing mentally, emotionally. You might, whether you're centered and at peace, whether you're mindful, being grateful, unhurried and yet full of anticipation. But regardless of how we choose to view the question, most people I've talked to at length or even in passing confess they are not ready for Christmas. And when, I, when, I, when that happens, this confession is often expressed with a bit of concern and weariness by the other person. And maybe you can relate. You know, maybe you can relate. Christmas is coming, 15 days, and we're not ready. And maybe we're worried that if we're not prepared, we won't have a meaningful Christmas. Well, if that's you, fear not. For today, we're going to learn about someone else who wasn't near ready for the very first Christmas. And this special someone that we all know and love especially at Christmas time, was completely unprepared for what would make angels sing, what would make shepherds come and see, what would make kings from afar bow and worship. And as we reflect on this person's story, we will discover that while we're never truly ready for Christmas to come, God is always ready for us. And all we need to be prepared to do is say yes to what the Lord seeks to bring into our lives so with that introduction, your Bibles are open, eyes on the screen. Let's hear from Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from the Lord will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Mary is a very misunderstood person. She's a very misunderstood woman among Christians. 
You're probably aware of this, but in some corners of the church, Mary has been so exalted to a deified status bordering on idolatry. So much so that some Christians pray directly to her. And then on the other side of the church, probably more people in this room, there's a large contingent who fear and warn that giving Mary too much attention or credit takes away from our singular devotion to Jesus. And sometimes this is so intense, this, this fear, this concern, that many Christians really just try to ignore or minimize Mary's presence and role in the Bible, except when they can't at Christmas time. Now, while of course Mary is not to be worshipped or prayed to, her presence beyond even Christmas looms large in the scriptures, especially though at the heart of this holy season. She's too important. She's too compelling to be overlooked. And again, how odd would the annual Christmas pageant be, the nativity set displayed in our homes if Mary was absent? So what we're going to do today is we're going to strip away the many layers of theology, piety, and even politics that we've buried Mary under and we're going to try to encounter her as if it were the first time. And to do that, the first thing we have to understand is that the truth is we really know very little about Mary. We don't know her parents' names, though Luke tells us Mary is somehow related to Elizabeth, the wife of Zechariah the priest, who we looked at last week. So then Mary, like Elizabeth, had roots in the tribe of Levi, the priesthood. And yet, despite her noteworthy ancestry, Mary was not living among the well-to-do or noteworthy in Israel. Mary lived in more modest conditions in honestly what was considered a backwater town, Nazareth. Nazareth. Even doesn't sound good when you say it, right? It sounds like Nazareth. Nazareth, a town so insignificant it's not mentioned in the Old Testament at all or in fact any other ancient Jewish writings. Nazareth, a working class neighborhood of masons and carpenters, a place that's so looked down upon that later one of Jesus' own future disciples will wryly ask, can anything good come from Nazareth? So Mary was a peasant girl. But again, we don't know her specific age. However, because we do know she's engaged, betrothed to a man named Joseph, we can assume as we first encounter Mary that she is what we would call a teenager. She was 12 or 13, maybe, maybe 14. Now, as shocking as that may sound to our modern ears, in the ancient world, children had to grow up much quicker and were viewed as adults at a far earlier age than we do today. Today, at a time when the period of adolescence is reported to be exp expanding into the 20s. The typical age of a betrothal back then was anywhere between 12 and 14 years of age for a woman. So if you think about it, and she's there, Mary in the Bible's Christmas story is a far cry from the, you know, fully matured and manicured Mary of our annual Christmas pageants, who's all meekly and mildly adorned in blue and white. Do you remember being 12, 13, 14? Like a lot of people, oh, I don't want to remember being 12, 13, or 14. It's a difficult time, right, to occupy that liminal space of development, biologically, emotionally, mentally. Everything seems to change almost every day, right? And just as you've adjusted to one of those changes, another one cascades over you. It's that season. That's why we all are like, yeah, well, stop talking. We don't want to go back there. It's the season of awkwardly, uncomfortably, painfully being stuck somewhere in the middle. No longer a child, but not quite, quite yet an adult. That's Mary. That's Mary. And she's engaged to a man named Joseph, some five to seven years her senior. 
Now, we don't know at that age, at that time, Mary's specific hopes and dreams, but we can safely imagine that she anticipated a typical life for someone of her circumstances. Married off by her parents, starting a family, forced to rely on her husband to get by in this world. And again, that may offend our modern ears, but Mary lives in a world of patriarchy, where women had very little power or agency, save through their father, their brother, if they had one, or their husband. And beyond leading a normal life in Nazareth as one living under the occupation of the Roman Empire, Mary, probably like her fellow Israelites, had grown up with the words of the prophets firmly in mind and anticipated that God one day, one day, God would send a powerful rescuer, a heroic leader from David's lineage to set her people once and for all free. Like her ancestors, she was waiting for a heaven-sent warrior king, a promised savior who would cleanse the land of its Roman occupiers. But Mary never would have expected, even in her wildest dreams, that she, an unmarried peasant girl from a rural town of fewer than 500 people, would one day receive a visit from a heavenly angel. Nonetheless, one day out of nowhere, the same angelic messenger Gabriel we've encountered before, two weeks ago with Zechariah, comes a calling not to the, to the sacred temple of the Lord, but to an insignificant northern village and greets not an elderly priest named Zechariah who longed to be a father, but a much younger girl named Mary who only recently got engaged and honestly isn't beginning to think about becoming a mother yet. And he He encounters her with these words. Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now the angel Gabriel's praise is not to be understood as a commendation of Mary's character or good behavior. I mean, after all, Mary really hasn't done anything yet. She's a teenager with her whole life ahead of her. Through her recent betrothal, Mary is only just beginning to step into adulthood. There's no indication that Mary's done anything special to merit this greeting, this encounter. And yet... Over the centuries, in order to justify what's about to happen, to make it seemingly more plausible, people have added a little something to this story. Namely, the idea that Mary must have been extraordinary. You know, like Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. And therefore, as some Christian traditions hold, Mary must have been without sin. Sinless. But such a notion, as compelling for some as it may be, has no basis in Scripture. The oldest and most authoritative tradition we have as Christians, the Bible, makes no such mention or allusion to Mary being without sin. More than this, if Mary was sinless, then she didn't need to be saved. If Mary was perfect, practically perfect in every way, then we didn't need Jesus. We need just look to Mary. No. The fact that Mary was a broken imperfect, fragile person, a sinner like the rest of us, is precisely the point. Because the astounding reality of Christmas is God has come down to dwell with flawed, disoriented, erroneous people like us. Not with the already righteous, not with the practically perfect, squeaky clean, because none is righteous. None is perfect, save God alone. For all of us stumble and fall short of the glory of God. 
Behind all the festive lights and glittering tinsel, underneath all the gifts we buy and exchange, despite how we might try to reshape Christmas, no matter what we try to make of this holiday, there would be no Christmas to celebrate without God's initiative. And God doesn't make this move because we've been good enough, because we've been nice instead of naughty. No, God simply enters our lives exactly as they are, meeting us exactly where and as we are, because God loves us and God purposes to save us from ourselves. Mary doesn't earn or merit God's attention. Mary doesn't even seek out this encounter with the Lord. She wasn't even praying. No, the Creator seeks out Mary, and that's why Mary is highly favored. Because before God graciously comes down into all of our lives, God begins by coming down into hers. Now, Mary's not ready for this kind of encounter. That becomes obvious as we're told by Luke that she was greatly disturbed by God's initiative in her life. You know, sometimes I think it's easier to wrestle with believing in God than it is to accept how much the Lord believes in us. I mean, when we're really honest about ourselves, when we're really honest with ourselves, when we truly look at all of our flaws, our failures, our deficiencies, our sin, we can have a hard time believing God would want anything to do with us, let alone that God can use someone like us. But as the angel Gabriel then shares with Mary in this word that extends not just to her but to all persons, God initiates with us. The Lord has faith in us before we have faith in him. And this announcement of the angel Gabriel is not intended to make us afraid. It's intended to inspire and encourage us in the relationship he offers us, in the opportunities he puts before us. And so Mary, like Abraham in a divinely orchestrated dream, like Moses before the burning bush, like Samuel who heard the voice of God calling his name in the night, like Isaiah before this grand majestic vision of the throne of heaven, Mary by way of an angel named Gabriel receives a call from the Lord. But unlike those who had come before her, God didn't ask Mary to go anywhere, to pick up and move away from her homeland. God didn't ask Mary to speak up and speak out for the liberation of her people from slavery. God didn't direct Mary to be a lone voice in a sea of false, misguided prophets. No, God informs Mary that she is going to have a child. The child of the Lord, the Son of the Most High. You know, every parent asserts their child is special. But Mary's child is going to be in another league entirely. For Mary is told that she will bear and carry to term the long-awaited heir to the throne of David, a son that she will name Jesus, which means God saves, that she will hold, she will deliver and hold in her hands the promised Redeemer of Israel, the Savior of the world, whose dawning kingdom will never end. That Mary is not ready for this news is succinctly expressed by her response, her question, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now at first, I don't know about you, but we might hear Mary's question as kind of odd. I mean, after all, she does have a fiancé named Joseph, and Mary probably knew the stories of her ancestors of sons who were born like Jacob, Reuben, Benjamin, Isaac, miracle babies, 
who were conceived by the Lord's promise, and all those happened within the context of marriage. I mean, as a bride-to-be, shouldn't Mary have presumed that the angel Gabriel is foretelling a future event of her becoming pregnant after her marriage is consummated? But interestingly, right from the start, Mary senses that what the angel Gabriel is unfolding to her is something more immediate. Something that's going to happen that she will be with child before she is married. And Mary may be a teenager, but she knows how babies work. And so she asks, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel Gabriel, much to the chagrin of most people who read this story, makes no effort to logically explain the process of virgin birth. Instead, Gabriel simply points, as the Bible often does, to the miraculous, mysterious, but ultimately undeniable power of the Holy Spirit, of God's repeated knack for making what humanity judges as impossible, possible. The power of the Spirit being invoked here is the power of the same Spirit that authored creation's beginning, bringing forth life from nothingness. In the beginning, with God's word, through the power of the Spirit, a formless blank space became the genesis of new life. And here again, through the power of that same spirit, Mary's empty womb will become the birthplace of the word made flesh, a new creation in and through Jesus Christ. And as a further witness to what he foretells to Mary, that God's promises never fail, the angel Gabriel shares with her yet another revelation of the Lord's creative power. Already at work through her much, much older cousin Elizabeth's seemingly inconceivable pregnancy, already at two trimesters. Now, we all know this story, and on the other side of the angel Gabriel's unveiling of what has come to be later known as the Immaculate Conception, we often jump right to Mary's yes to God. Mary said yes. But the truth is, we've sanitized this encounter. We've decorated it for Christmas and have made Mary's yes seem obvious, logical, turning it into some kind of Christmas fairy tale ending. Mary said yes. But I want us to slow down for a moment and honestly consider whether after hearing this angelic announcement, all Mary could see before her was happily ever after. The truth is, I believe there's a long pause represented between verses 37 and 38, between Gabriel's final words and Mary's eventual yes. While Mary may have begun to understand the specifics of God's plan for her, how could Mary fathom or reconcile what the Lord was asking of her? The gap between these two verses is where Mary's question of how can this be goes beyond mere biology. Think about it. Because Mary, I assure you, did. Think about it. Conceiving a child miraculously before being married without knowing her husband means Mary's may it be to the Lord would have to come before her I do to Joseph. According to the angel Gabriel, conceiving out of wedlock was a part of God's plan. But Mary knew this wasn't how God's law worked. The law of Moses was clear. The culture and custom of her people was clear. Childbearing is supposed to happen after marriage, not before Gabriel's good news of Mary becoming pregnant out of wedlock flew in the face of everything Mary's community expected of her. Bearing this child, she would be perceived potentially by her father, her mother, her family, her rabbi, her community, her intended husband Joseph. Mary would be perceived as an adulteress, 
as a lawbreaker, not God's promise keeper. And living in such a small town, I don't know how many of us have ever lived in a small town, you know, one of those places where everyone knows everything about every single person, Mary probably could imagine the things people would think about her. And if those thoughts, cruel as they might be, turned to anger, if Joseph decided to divorce her, which would be his right, if all that disapproval and anger turned holier than thou, Mary knew she could be stoned to death. That she would become a martyr for the Lord rather than the mother of the Messiah. And even if Joseph was a forgiving man and divorced her quietly, Mary still would find herself without a husband. Abandoned and stranded without a man in a man's world. Her son, the would-be Messiah, would be raised without a father. Already poor, Mary would be cut off from her family and her community. She would go from having very little to literally being left with nothing. So you see, contrary to how we often tell it, Mary doesn't leap headlong into saying yes. Because no offense, Mary wasn't ready for this. Mary wasn't near ready. Physically, mentally, emotionally, even spiritually for what was going to come next to answering a calling that would demand everything of her. How could she be? How could anyone be? So then, how does Mary get to yes with God? Mary may not fully understand the most unexpected news she's ever heard, news that will disrupt the course of her life forever. Mary may not perceive how the news of her becoming an unwed mother in the eyes of society and possibly a rejected and shamed divorcee, how this is all good news. Mary may not believe she's ready for what, by the way, the angel Gabriel doesn't ask her to do. Would you do this, Mary? But the angel Gabriel simply announces, Mary, this is happening. But Mary recognizes, while she is not ready, God has shown up to make her ready. That part of the announcement, part of the invitation, is the Lord comes to prepare her, to guide her and care for her in whatever comes next. And so Mary, unlike Abraham and Sarah, doesn't laugh before God's plan. Mary, unlike Moses, doesn't try to make excuses or ask for someone else to be her surrogate. Unlike the prophet Jonah, Mary doesn't try to run in the opposite direction and hide. Mary, instead, without any provisos, without any negotiation, said, yes. I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me. According to your word. Listen carefully to what Mary says here. Confronted by the Lord's initiative, his faith in her, Mary yields before. Mary trusts in God's promise and ability to be with and for her. To make her ready for whatever comes next. Because make no mistake, Mary's yes here isn't the end of her story. Giving birth to Jesus would only be the beginning of ceaseless, surprising discoveries for which, though she was not ready, God would make her ready. The epitome of which would be witnessing her child, the son she would raise to maturity, reveal himself not as some great conqueror, 
achieving final victory by the blood of his enemies, but as a suffering servant, sacrificing his own blood on a Roman cross. And so you see, these ten verses mark more than a moment for Mary. More than nine months of a pregnancy, they represent the start of a beautiful relationship between Mary and the Lord. A transformation from a peasant girl to a prophet. From Mary, the future wife of Joseph, to Mary, the mother of God. From hesitancy to discipleship that lasted a lifetime and beyond. Mary let go of what she knew and took hold of the God who knew her. Mary surrendered the limits of her control and welcomed the limitless possibilities of what the Lord could and would do through her. Mary released her plans for the present and for the future and instead embraced God's presence here and now, being simply present in God's reality for her life and for all creation one step at a time. Mary goes from being afraid to being confused and curious to becoming committed Trusting herself, her identity, and her destiny to the one who first gave her life and who now seeks to bring eternal life to the world through her. And with each subsequent yes Mary offered unto the Lord in her life, God made her ready, opened her heart and her mind and her will, her capacity and influence for the kingdom, her authority and power through the Holy Spirit so that she could not only be a part of history, but that so she could be a part of God's plan to change the world for the better. We can get so caught up in being ready for Christmas, so caught up in being ready for Christmas, especially at this season of the year, we feel the march of time breathing down our necks, right? We become mindful all of a sudden every December of what's important, what really matters, peace on earth, goodwill to men, all persons, coming together as family, friends, neighbors, living out of a posture of generosity, compassion, and love rather than standing apart all the time and being in opposition to each other. This time of year, we find ourselves more conscious of how fragile life is, how precious and not to be taken for granted are those moments we can share with those we appreciate and cherish. And so we worry. We stress about not frittering the moment not frittering the chance to prove we're living and loving well, to try to put the perfect mark on the passing of yet another year. But the truth is, like Mary, we're never ready for Christmas. Because the Christmas we long for, the Christmas we dream about, is more than a couple of weeks in December of putting on a good show. Decorating and dressing up our lives, our homes, and our relationships to look differently than they actually are the other 11 months of the year. The Christmas we long for, the Christmas we dream about, the Christmas we need is about the birth of a new beginning, the start of a radical transformation from darkness to light, from brokenness to healing, from grief to joy, from death to life, that while we can manage to put that into words, we never can fully, completely, or lasting make a reality. We're never ready for Christmas because that kind of Christmas is something only God can initiate. Only God can bring. I mean, think of it this way. If we were ready and prepared for Christmas, if we were ready and prepared for Christmas, then Christmas wouldn't be about God's faith in us. Christmas would be about our faith in ourselves. 
And if you pay attention, by the way, to most of the modern Christmas stories, that's exactly what they're saying. But the gift of Christmas, of God coming down to be with us in Jesus, is the revelation of how favored we all are. Not because of our faith in God, but because of the faith that the Lord has in us. And confronted by this good news, the gospel, like Mary, we may not be sure how this can be. We may struggle to conceive how Christ can come, how Jesus can dwell, how the new abundant life God seeks to bring can be born in the brokenness, in the mess, in the chaos of this world. We may not understand how Jesus fits, how Christ's plans for us, his kingdom can take shape in our lives. We may not perceive that we're ready or prepared for whatever glorious purpose God seeks to birth in and through us. I mean, we don't know enough, right? We don't know enough to be ready. We don't have what it takes yet to be ready. Well, we're not ready right now, you know, with all these other things we have going on. You know, once we figure out our lives, you know, once, once we figure out our lives, then we can start learning to say yes to what God is doing. You know, once we finish school, uh, once the rush at work settles down, you understand. Once we fix that relationship, once we find the right job, once we retire, whoo, man. Once we start a family, once we become more spiritual, we're working on it. Once we find a place to call home, once we solve this or that problem, then we'll be ready. But my friends, the good news of Christmas is God doesn't wait until we think we are ready. Christmas is about God making us ready to receive him, making us ready for the inconceivable, for possibilities unimaginable. Making us ready to see and recognize how the cross, an instrument of fear and torture, becomes a symbol of unconditional love and freedom. Making us ready to see how the looming, terminal shadow of death that stalks us even still, in the end becomes nothing more than a momentary gateway to the victory of resurrection and everlasting life. Beloved, if the Lord only showed up and spoke spoke, called us to things we believed we were ready for, if God only showed up for things we were ready for, then understand this. Christmas, Easter, Pentecost, all of it wouldn't be about grace. Because grace has nothing to do with our effort or readiness. Grace is all about God taking care of everything giving us what we need, preparing us for what comes next, getting us ready for what lies ahead. With grace, it's not about being ready. With grace, it's simply about saying yes. Saying yes to the word of God becoming flesh anew in and through our lives. For what begins with Mary is an invitation to us all. This is Christmas. This is the gospel. God comes down. Jesus comes to dwell in the hearts and minds of all men and women who say yes to him. The same Jesus Mary bore in her body seeks to take up residence in us and to be incarnated through us for the sake of the world he still loves. Paul puts it this way in one of his letters. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not Christ out there, not Christ up here, down there. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What could God do with your yes to him? What could God do with your yes to him? 
And again, I don't expect you to answer that right away because like Mary, there's a long pause between that question and our answer. But what could God do through your yes to him? What if we just said, let it be to God rather than why, not now, or let me wait and see until it fits into my schedule. What if instead of trying to squeeze little bits of God into our busy lives when it suits us, when we have time, we let go and we were willing to have our plans altered so that we will fit into his, his plans for us. What if we were less concerned, less fixated on having enough faith and instead let God give us the faith we need? What could God do with our yes to him? And I've been doing this a while enough that when I ask a question like that, I know that, and I'm, and I'm actually sure it's more than one person, that several of us are being pricked right now. Because God has already shown up in your life, whether or not you've acknowledged him yet. And God is asking you to say yes. More than that, like Mary, God's not saying, hey, will you let this happen? God's saying, it's coming. This is happening. Are you going to go with the flow? Are you going to trust me? Or are we going to keep negotiating? Are you going to try to run? Is there someone in your life, and this again gets very mindful around Christmas, someone in your family, a friend, a coworker, who you just will not know? I'm done with them. I'm having nothing to do with them. And God is saying, oh, no, 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 no. We need to say yes to that person. Is there something going on in your life, something that you've been about, into, devoting your time and energy, that you know it, you cover your ears, you close your eyes, but God is saying no to that so you can say yes to something else. And that's a big deal. By the way, oftentimes to say yes to God, we have to say no to something else. And there are several people in this room I know who have a hard time saying no because they say yes to everything. Saying yes to everything isn't saying yes to God. Saying yes to everything gets in the way of the yes that God wants us to say. Sometimes we have to say no in order to say yes. Is there something right now? You, you're, it's like you almost feel like there's a spotlight on you, right? How does he know? I don't know. That God is saying, say no to this, enough of this, because this is what I have for you. Where in your life right now are you saying, you've, got, you've had a dream, you've had a hope, you've, you were convinced it was from God, but it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened. Man, you've done everything you can to make what you believe was from God happen. And surprise, surprise, you've done everything you can and nothing has changed. Surprise, surprise, because that's generally how it works. Because if God gives it to you, God is not going to ask you to make it happen. God is going to make it happen. But here's the proviso. Here's the problem where you've got to say yes. If you're going to say yes to what God said he wants to do in and through you, it's going to be in his timing. Well, I don't like that very much. Well, it's not just going to be in God's timing. It's also going to be in God's way. But I got the, I've got it all mapped out. If God would just follow my directions and my instruction, this would all work out fine. But God has this way of saying, I like what you've done there, but I think I can do it better. What could God do with your yes to him? How would we be changed and for those of us who are sitting there and going, I can't change. I've spent my whole life trying. Maybe that's the problem. Instead of trying to change, let yourself be changed by God. 
How would our relationships be transformed? You don't understand. You don't know this person. You don't know what we've been through. You don't know what they did. You don't know what I did. What could God do through our, our yes for him? Where are there things in our lives that we go, impossible? And God says, really? Possible. No way. God says, way. What could God do with our yes to him? How would it transform our families? So many of our families are broken. How could it transform our community? So many of our communities were still, it's so funny, we were so upset about being isolated from each other, and yet on the other side of COVID, we're even more isolated from each other. In our little silos, what could God do with our yes to him to our communities that are afraid that if we get in the same room, we're going to kill each other? What could God do to our world? With our yes to him, instead our yes to the typical answers that we come up with. Complaining, apathy, or just bomb the hell out of them. Bomb the hell out of them, they'll solve it. Beloved, when we say yes to God like Mary, when we say yes, and it's not an easy yes, it's not a quick yes, when we say yes to God like Mary, we become bearers of the promise and character of Jesus. We become vessels of grace, of God's forgiveness, God's salvation, God's eternal life into the brokenness of our families, into the divided nature of our communities, into the hurting of this world. And each yes, we like Mary offer in response to God's initiative and calling. And it's not just one yes, it's every day yes. But every day we say yes to God's initiative and calling, it gives birth to Christ's presence and power anew And it changes not only our lives, but it changes the world for the better. Mary's prayer, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Mary's prayer is the repeated prayer of Advent that moves us from not being ready to being made ready for God's glorious deliverance that only just begins at Christmas. But make no mistake, it's a prayer that takes a lifetime to learn. It's a prayer that takes a lifetime to learn, but it always begins by saying yes to God. For even though we may hesitate and falter, even though we may question and doubt, even though we may be weary and tired, even though we may not think we're ready, God comes anyway. Christ is born. And the Holy Spirit continues to give birth to the kingdom of heaven, both in and through us. Because this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.